as we come to think about it, let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be now and always pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. On the 28th of March, 1942, British naval commandos deliberately rammed HMS Campbelltown into the lock gates of the western French port of Saint-Nazaire. Operation Chariot, it was called, some of you will know about it, was one of the most daring raids of the war. They, drew, they, 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 uh, they came up in a whole flotilla right up the Loire, right up to the, that, that, uh, those, those gates, and they, because uh, they, they, what, what they were trying to do is basically take out the one deep port that the Germans could refuel their, um, their big U-boats. And so they wanted to blow up this dock, and that's the way they did it. They drove the HMS Campbelltown right in to the lock gate, rammed it, packed full of explosives. Well, it was a slightly more serene circumstances in June 2019, when a giant cruise ship, the MSC Opera, rammed into one of the historic jetties in Venice. You can watch it on YouTube. Well, I just want you to imagine for a moment, if you would, imagine the bow of a vast ship plowing right on into the end of a pier. It acts like a giant wedge, splitting the pier in two around it. And the reason I want you to imagine that is because it gives us a way of understanding what happened when Jesus entered into this world. He's like that ship. He comes in, plows into the history of this world like that great wedge, bringing with him God's eternal kingdom. He plows into the world's history and he splits humanity. He splits history in two around him. And so what happens is that some go one way and they cling onto the ingrained ways of this dying age with its values of wealth and power and image and popularity. But then some side with Jesus and they begin to live in a new way. They begin to now live according to the eternal kingdom. And those are the followers of Jesus who find themselves out of sync with this current age, often at odds with it. As we saw last week in the first of our sermons from Luke chapter 6. Now this section of Luke 6 contains some of Jesus' most famous words. In Matthew's Gospel, it's known as the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke, the Sermon on the Plain. And Adam took us through the opening of it last week. Do you remember those startling pronouncements of blessing and woe? Those whom the world considers blessed that is, the rich and the admired. They face future loss. Woe, says Jesus. So long as, that is, they resist the eternal kingdom of Jesus that has arrived in the midst of our history. But those on the side of Jesus are blessed. Even if the world hates them. Even if they're left poor and hungry for his sake. I'm reading an amazing account at the moment of the um, face of the church in Moldova in Eastern Europe during the Soviet years 
and the Soviet days, those believers, those sisters and brothers, they lost so much. I mean, it's incalculable in human terms how they suffered, what they lost. Yet Jesus says, blessed. You're, you're, you're standing with me. You're standing with me, blessed. So the coming of Jesus brought the eternal kingdom into the present world. And we need to live now by the ways of the kingdom. I don't know if you've ever travelled um, long haul and uh, suffered from jet lag, experienced jet lag. I have a number of times. Well, the advice I always follow is that you need to uh, set your watch at the time of your destination, even on the runway at Heathrow, set your watch to the time in New Zealand or Australia or wherever it is, Singapore or wherever it is you're going. Set your time to the destination zone. Try to sleep and wake, not according to how your eyelids feel or your belly tells you the time is, no. Do it according to the time at your destination. Live according to that, which illustrates where the way the followers of Jesus need to live in these counterintuitive times. Live according to the future kingdom, even though we are still in a world that clings to its dead-end, doomed values. But how do we do it? Well, today's passage brings Jesus' most famous teaching to our ears, and it answers our question, how do we live according to the eternal kingdom in this present world? Verse 27, <clears throat> Jesus says, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Love your enemies. You know, just about everybody in the world, pretty much, who knows anything about Jesus and his teaching will know that that is his teaching. It is just about his most characteristic words. And it is utterly basic for living for Jesus. If this was the university of Jesus, this is 101. This is the, this is the basic foundational command of Jesus. And yet, how long it takes us to embrace the basics. How long? The, my instrument, as some of you know, is the oboe, woodwind instrument. And um, the essential for playing the oboe, the absolute essential, as to so much else in, in, um, in any wind instrument, is getting the breathing right. Getting the breathing right. I must have been studying the oboe full-time for several years before I finally got the breathing right. The most basic thing took me years. And in the same way, even though we know, we all know about this teaching, I guess, I don't think this is news to any of us, love your enemies, it can take years before we allow it to penetrate our minds and hearts and begin to take it seriously enough to live by it. So we need to do two things this morning, I think. First of all, I want to just outline this text, which basically is a, a supporting text backing this fundamental command, love our enemies. But then second, what I want to do is to try and clear up some of the misunderstandings that keep us from seeing clearly what is required. Some of the smoke screens that flare up in our minds when we start thinking about this that prevent us from actually taking seriously what it means to love our enemies. So, first of all, let's go through the text. It's there in Luke chapter 6. 
If you've still got it open, do look at it because I'm really, oh, it's, look, it's on the screen. So, first, what we're going to do, first of all, in verses 27 and 28, four commands are given, um, and they're all as counterintuitive as the other. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who ill-treat you. Totally counterintuitive. And then Jesus follows up with three instructions of that command in action. So, verse 29 is the first one. If anyone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. In other words, love uh, doesn't retaliate to a wrong, but it persists with the wrongdoer. Verse 29 Here's another illustration of loving your enemies. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. In other words, far from clinging to possessions, give. Verse 30, another illustration of the principle. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. So far from exacting repayment, write off the loss and move on. So, if we're ever wondering, how should I treat someone? Well, we only need to ask ourselves a question about ourselves. What, what would best serve my happiness? What would I most want? Because that's what we should try and give to them. That's the point of Jesus' so-called golden rule in verse 31. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Now, there were lots of teachers in the ancient world who said um, similar things to that. Most, actually, interestingly, most of them put it in the negative. Most of them say um, to the effect, if you wouldn't want someone to do that to you, don't do that to them. So they put it negatively. Jesus puts it positively, and in fact, more positively than any of the other philosophers and teachers of the ancient world, so far as we know. Do to others as you would have them do to you. In other words, let your wishes for your own happiness proactively lead you to treat others according to that same vision. So would you want people to love you? Would you want people to do you good, bless you and pray for you? Yes, I'd want all those things. Then do that for others, even if they're against you. Now, of course, Jesus and his followers do not have a monopoly on love. Absolutely not, and we, we could think of examples of people who wouldn't necessarily say they were Christians, like Nelson Mandela or Gandhi or whatever, who wouldn't necessarily say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, yet who are shaped profoundly by this sort of teaching. And not just extraordinary people like that, actually everybody knows something of love, really everybody does. And uh, that's what Jesus is saying. Everybody's, everybody loves. The question is, who do they love and why do they love? So three rhetorical questions coming up, which really urge us for a love that is not just the ordinary human love, but out of the ordinary, beyond the ordinary. Uh, so th th these three um, que rhetorical questions, they, they all have the same form as the one in verse 32. Verse, so verse 32, Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. In other words, that's just ordinary. If, if, if somebody loves you, you tend to love them back. That's just kind of the way it goes. 
Just about everyone is good to those who are good to them. Anyone will lend to those who are guaranteed to pay them back. But Jesus says, that's not, that's not enough. That's just ordinary. More is expected from us for reasons that verse 35 goes on to explain. Why? Verse 35, but love your enemies, do good, do them good, lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. God's kindness and we are the children of the Most High, says Jesus to his disciples. So God, the creator, is kind to people, um, to, to the whole world. There are plenty of people in the world who would you know, adamantly even deny his very existence. But he still pours out kindness and everything good they have comes from him. That's the kindness of the creator. And then there's the mercy of the redeemer, our father, who is full of mercy, who doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, but gives his son out of love to remove our sins from us. And even as we continue as believers in him to wander away, he goes on treating us with mercy and kindness. So our father is characterized by love for his enemies. The same love is in Jesus, God the Son. The Holy Spirit operates by the same love. Love for enemies. Goodness to those who, uh, who, who, don't, who don't deserve it. That is the trait of the divine family. That is the way our God is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's why we, as the children of God, are expected to rise above the world standards of love. Love for those who love us, why, that's just human. Love for enemies, that's divine. It's for God and for his children. Have we got it? We need to love our enemies, turn the other cheek, give to everyone who asks us. Now, Jesus ends Luke 6 with a story, the story of the wise man who built his house upon the rock and the foolish man who built his house upon the sand, which is a story to illustrate how vital it is that we don't just hear what he says, but actually do it. Yet, I know full well what happens in my mind as I encounter all this teaching about loving enemies and turning the other cheek. Am I the only one whose mind is full of questions about it, misgivings, Questions flood in. Most of those questions, in my mind, begin with two words. Yeah, but what if? That's three, four words, isn't it? Yeah, but what if? What if? I find, my, I find even emotions rising in me and uh, echoing John McEnroe and saying, Lord, you cannot be serious. Really? Honestly? You for real? And as a result, this teaching um, gets put to one side. Not, it's not exactly hidden away in a cupboard. It's too important and famous for that. No, I think it's more like what we tend to do with this teaching is we place it on a high shelf. It's like a beautiful ornament of our faith to be admired, but far too far out of reach to be usable in everyday situations and relationships. So we need to take it down and put it to use. And that means addressing some of the questions that arise as we think about applying this. Now let me just get some of those questions out into the open, some of the ones that come to my mind, because perhaps you've asked them at different points too. Maybe you're asking them now. So there are some questions that operate on the level of uh, 
the state and society at large. So, for example, turn the other cheek. Right, ought we then to defund the police, as some say, and turn the other cheek towards those who do evil? Just let them get on with it. Or, go back, I mentioned the, 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 the war earlier on, the Second World War. Was it, was it actually wrong to stand up to Hitler? Maybe Chamberlain was right after all, and he should have just offered the other cheek and let it kept getting slapped. Well, that's actually easy to answer. Um, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you and, um, and uh, the, uh, turn the other cheek. That, uh, it applies to personal relationships, not to the running of nations. In fact, other parts of the Bible, I'm thinking particularly of Romans 13, God has given the nations the sword in order to uh, punish wrongdoing and defend its citizens. That is a perfectly legitimate thing. Although, of course, has to be handled with exceeding care. That's another subject. But what Jesus is talking about here is not to do with the state or the, the uh, legislature. It's to do with personal relationships. But that doesn't necessarily make it any easier. In fact, the question's harder on the level of personal relationships. Right, for example, this pings into my mind because it's so topical and it's such an important issue in our society. It always has been, but it's becoming more, more apparent now um, because it's more talked about. Does loving our enemy and turning the other cheek mean remaining in a marriage where there's domestic abuse? Does it mean that? Or does it mean just letting the workplace bully um, push us around as they please? Or, another scenario, should we advise our children, who perhaps are being bullied by the school misery maker, should we just say, just, just um, roll over and let yourself be kicked? And if so, and here's, a, uh, here's a, another question that comes into my mind, where does God's love of justice fit in? I mean, I sometimes think, well, hang on, Jesus, doesn't your teaching here basically declare open season for this world's abusers while turning God's people into passive victims forbidden to resist them? Or maybe you're asking the question in this form. I bet there's someone who's thinking of it in these terms. Did Jesus intend us to take this literally? It's another way of asking, or another way of sort of directing a similar set of questions. Did he intend us to take it literally, literally by the letter of what he says rather than by the spirit? And how will we know how he intends us to take it, whether absolutely literally or um, as, a, as a, a picture of, of how we ought to act. Well, I think the most helpful way to answer that is to look at the way in which Jesus himself responded to, uh, his, uh, to insult, to injury, and to threat. To his enemies, in other words. How does he respond? How do the apostles respond in the Bible? So interesting, you know. Jesus was struck in the face at his trial, explicitly says it in John, 9, in John 18, Jesus hit in the face. What does he do? Well, did, 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 did he love? Yes, absolutely. Did he literally turn around the other cheek? No, he didn't. He stood his ground and he called out the injustice. But yet, later that night, when the time came for him to yield up his life, he did allow himself to be struck repeatedly 
by the soldiers as he yielded to crucifixion for our sake. You know, Jesus' response to his enemies makes an absolutely fascinating study, which it is well worth doing. Because at times, he avoids them. When he knows that they, they, they want to, to kill him, at times, he avoids them. At other times, he publicly confronts them. He tells his disciples to be as uh, wise as serpents and as innocent as doves in the way they act towards outsiders. And that included actually shaking the dust of their sandals from towns that rejected their message. And just as Jesus confronts wrongdoing in others, he, so he urges church members to address issues with one another. So that famous teaching in Matthew 18, if someone sins against us, we are to talk to them about it first privately, then, if need be, with a few others, and then we take the issue to the whole church. In other words, we do confront evil and sin and wrongdoing. It's interesting, we see a similar variation in Paul's approach to his enemies um, in the book of Acts, and Peter's, actually. So Paul, for example, he's perfectly willing, as is Peter, to suffer in the cause of the kingdom, if that was what was required. But on other occasions, he avoids it. A couple of times, he claims his right as a Roman citizen to prevent ill treatment, speaking up for himself or deliberately evading those who want him dead. So, in all, just go back to Jesus. In all Jesus' responses to his enemies, we must assume absolutely that he loved them. And he shows that. He prayed for them. And, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing as they nailed him to the cross. Do you remember when Judas comes in the garden to betray him? How does he greet him? Come, what, do what you have come for, friend. Love. Always. He wept with sorrow for Jerusalem, the city that would reject him. But he's no glutton for abuse. And he clearly doesn't expect his followers to be, to be so either. So, to answer the specific question, does he expect us to take these words literally in all circumstances? No. In the words of one commentator um, that I'm quoting, these commands are expressed in absolute terms to shock the listener by giving a vivid contrast to one's own thinking. Because we think in terms of common sense. We think in terms of survival. We think, frankly, sometimes, often in terms of revenge. No, says Jesus. Think in terms of the eternal kingdom that has entered into our world and of which you have so you have sided, well, with which you have sided. Think of that and love your enemies because that is the way of that eternal kingdom. Yes, be wise. Leave that abusive relationship. Be absolutely clear about that. Leave it if, 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 if that's, if, if that's the, 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 the thing you can possibly do. Leave it. Stand up to that workplace bully. Don't tell your children just to let the school misery maker push them around. But choose to love them. Choose to love them. When you want to hate them, and we do, when someone hurts you or whatever, that's, that's our instinctive knee-jerk reaction. We do want to do that. Pray for them instead. When you crave revenge... 
Remind yourself that God will judge them, in fact, and that you are free to love. If you catch yourself fantasizing about brilliant put-downs, that if only I'd said that, do you know what the French call that? The élan d'escalier, the élan of the staircase. In other words, the sort of the great, um, the, the, the sort of the, the brilliant comments that you would have said that you only, you only think of as you walk on the staircase back up away from the confrontation. If only I'd said that. You sort of go over it in your mind. Oh, if I just said that, that would have absolutely crushed them. Sorry, am I revealing the... <laughs> I'm sure you never think in those terms. If you catch yourselves fantasizing about that, then ask God to soften your heart. Lord Jesus, there's a problem here with me. Give me love. So, and, and let me just say as well that, of course, that we need to bear in mind that whilst Jesus' instructions are not always to be taken literally, they sometimes are. They sometimes are. When the time was right, Jesus did renounce all self-protection and accepted total vulnerability and passivity to the evil of others. He submitted himself to abuse, to flogging, to crucifixion, out of love for his enemies and in the interests of the eternal kingdom. And love has made similar demands of countless of Jesus' followers, the martyrs, down the years, there are, there are I mean, eye-watering numbers of people who died for him over the years. And of course, the very act of martyrdom in the end is saying, no, I yield to, to, to this um, for the sake of the kingdom of God. That's what's required of me now. And so sometimes we do need to do that. And it, it, we, we can trust, I think, that God will guide us as that moment comes. If the moment comes when actually we do need simply just to, to, to take it, then God will guide us. See, the thing is, it's possible to be overwhelmed, so overwhelmed by the teaching and the questions that this teaching rise, uh, raises for us that we never actually seriously consider obeying it. We think to ourselves, oh, come on, that's just unrealistic. I mean, there's all these things, blah, 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 and just then get on with our lives untouched. And that is why I have stressed what it is not saying. This doesn't tell people to remain in an abusive situation if they can get out. We are not required to trust an enemy again. It will not be possible to reconcile a relationship until that other person has turned away from their ways. And we may legitimately press charges in a court of law. That's a perfectly legitimate thing to do if necessary, but we absolutely must love our enemies. Has someone crossed you, insulted you, taken something from you? I can tell you, you will not feel love towards them. You will not feel love towards them. All you can do is offer God your willingness and he will give the power. Offer him your willingness. He will give you the power. It reminds me of that story at the end of The Hiding Place by Corrie ten Boom. Many of you have read it. If you haven't read The Hiding Place by Corrie ten Boom, it's a wonderful book. And there's Corrie, who has lost her father and her sister 
in the camps, in the in Ravensbrück and other concentration camps, and uh, she was confronted by an officer who, at the end of the war, she'd just given a talk on forgiveness and was standing at the front shaking people's hands. She'd just given this talk on God's loving forgiveness and love for his enemies and how wonderful the restoration we can find in him is. And this man came up, and all she could see, she knew exactly who he was. He didn't recognize her. She saw that's the man who walked around with a leather crop, um, who made us parade naked before him, who starved us, who did all these things to us. And she says, in that moment, I froze. My blood ran cold. I had nothing but hatred for this man. And then she remembered, Lord, I've just been preaching about love for enemies and forgiveness. She says, Lord, help me. She says, Lord, all I can do. And this man had thrust his hand out to shake her hand. So all I can do is, all I can do is open my hand. Lord, you're going to have to do the rest. Very moving at the end of the book there as she picks up her hand and suddenly finds this rush of divine power entering into her life and enabling her to embrace this man. Brother, you are forgiven. I love you. Well, this is the power that we open ourselves to as we give ourselves and offer our willingness and he gives us his power. So someone's mucked you around Someone just is like, someone, the, the, the reality of some person is just there like a stone in your shoe emotionally, constantly there, just irritating. Well, be like the man, he was a man who lived in the 19th century, I don't know exactly who he was, but I heard about him. He wrote of a friend, he said, some persons would never have had a particular share in his prayers, but for the injuries they had done him. Pray for a chance to do them some good. Pray that God will bless them. Because when you do that, you're joining your heart to God's own heart. You're tapping into the great electricity supply of heaven. You will be living in accordance with the ways of this great kingdom, the kingdom of God that has burst into our time, turning everything in this world on its head like that boat crashing into the pier. And you've got no idea I've got no idea as we do that what wonderful things might God might bring from it. Let's pray. <clears throat> Are there some particular things, a particular relationship that you need to realize this morning you've got to change your ways over? Lord, help us. Help us. We thank you for Jesus and for modeling this love for enemies. And we pray that you would give us the divine family trait through the power of the Holy Spirit. All to your glory, almighty Father. Amen.